Lord, we, we've all been given so much, every good and perfect gift has come down from above, it's from your hand, and so often we, we, we get busy, we get caught up in life doing stuff, and we forget how much we have been given. Uh, sometimes sometimes we, uh, we don't appreciate health and, until it's uh, on its way out. And then we realize what a tremendous gift. We, we tend to assume it's going to be there. We tend to assume that uh, we're, we're going to be able to get up early in the morning and go all day and pretty much till late at night and then get some rest a little bit and then uh, get up in the next day and start doing it again. Uh, it, it, uh, for many of us, it's always been that way. But, but Lord, we know that's a precious gift, and uh, there are no guarantees. I think of uh, that old Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, who said, uh, he, he said uh, that you often enrich us by impoverishing us. And sometimes, Lord, you take away uh, things that we would not want taken away we see that in Scripture. Um, and when those things are taken from us, whether it's health or whether it's finances or whether uh, it, it's a relationship, it, it can be a multitude of things. Uh, we, we suddenly gain perspective that we didn't have before. We would pray for uh, Randy as he's down there tonight and, and just not doing well, just feeling lousy. We would pray that you would be gracious to touch his body. Lord, that, we, we always pray that, because we know you have power. You can do anything, Lord. Uh, you, you are the great physician. And you could touch his body and, and heal it in an instant and take that away from him. And we believe you're a healer. Um, we don't understand why some people are healed and others are not. Uh, and you don't really give us the reason for that. Your, your ways are beyond finding out. But we do know this about you. We know, as Psalm 119.68 says, that you are good and you do good. Even when we can't see it. Even when it doesn't add up to us. So tonight, Lord, we, we bow before you. We... Um, acknowledge that you are the supreme sovereign. We remind ourselves of, of the many things you have given to us. And, and sometimes, Lord, we get feeling sorry for ourselves, and sometimes we start looking around and we see other people that have been given things that we don't have and we don't enjoy. And if we're not careful, we can get into that state of mind where we murmur and we complain. But that's a wrong perspective. If we're going to compare ourselves, let us compare to those who have less, not to those who have more. Uh, there are people around the world that would look at us and just marvel at how we live. We've been given so much. So we want to have thankful hearts and thankful attitudes and thankful spirits, and we want to express that to you tonight. We pray for the guys here tonight that are going through deep waters. On the outside, everybody looks good, everyone looks fine, everybody looks together. There's some guys in here with uh, broken hearts, absolutely crushed. 
We pray that you would encourage them and sustain them and let them know that you're with them and that you have not abandoned them. You know precisely what's going on in their lives. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. The right time, you'll lift them up. Give them what they need to get through the rest of the evening. And then in the morning, show them your mercies all over again. You promised to do that. Lord, as we crack open James again, uh, you know what every guy in here needs out of this passage. And it's so amazing to us how you'll take your word and apply it. You, you, you have that amazing ability through your spirit to do that. And so we would indicate to you tonight that uh, we're open to what you want to say to us and what you want to do uh, through us. Uh, don't let us get rebellious. Don't let us resist. Don't let us get hard-hearted. Don't let us drift. That's so easy. It happens and we don't even know it. So anchor us in your word tonight. Grow us up. We would pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to James chapter 3. We're going to wrap this chapter up this evening. And we're going to get into James 3 in this particular subject. And... It's been a while since I have updated you on the condition of my well, but I feel that I need to do that. Those of you who have been in this study for a while, you might remember that there was a great crisis that occurred in my life uh, last July, and that is that my well went dry. Uh, we live out on some acreage past Louisville and Flower Mound, and... Um, had this shallow well. It's just worked wonderfully for years, only about 60 feet deep. But uh, we irrigate about seven acres, and we got 31 stations. And this sucker's just worked like a charm for years and years and years. And then in July, if you remember last July, the heat, the drought, long drought, it, it went dry on me. And I was in California and got a call, and there's just no water coming out of the sprinklers. And when I got back, it, 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 was, just, it was just a nightmare. And... Uh, had the well guy out, and we're doing this, and we're trying this, and we're trying this. Well, long story short, I've been putting off, I've been putting off putting in a new well because I didn't want to spend the money. But summer's coming. So about three weeks ago, they come and do another well on the other side of the property. And, and we got a hill, and we put it up at the top of the hill so the pressure will come down, you know, we'll... So they popped the well, and we got that well going, and I'm waiting for the guys to come out and you know, get power to the well so we can actually get water. Well, they show up Monday, and they got a little small trencher, and they're trenching about 150 feet to the electricity. And um, uh, I went out, ran some errands, I came back, and I see these guys running around kind of frantically. And I, I got out of the truck, and, and they said, uh, we, we, cut, we, we cut the water line. And we got city water to the house. And I said, well, the shutoff is up by the, by the front up on the hill. So the guy said, I'll run up and shut it off. I said, you can't miss it. In two places, you've got to shut it off. He says, I'll get it. And so he's got a cell phone. and you know, So we're standing there, and water's coming out. I, I, I mean, I'm guessing it's coming out 
20 gallons a minute out of this line. It's just pouring out. And the guy's up there, and he goes, yeah, I shut it off, and it's still coming out. And we said, well, okay, you know, it's probably going to take here a minute, and two minutes, and three minutes, and four minutes. It's coming out of there like Niagara Falls. And I said, hey, there are two lines up there, and I told him, he goes, no. And so then I went up there and made sure, and he had shut it off, and I come back out, and it's still coming out. No, wait a minute. This makes absolutely no sense. This makes no sense whatsoever. And we start tracking, and of course it's underground, we don't, you know. That water is coming out of my dry well. (laughs) 25 gallons a minute. It's just pouring out of there. It's just pouring out of there. Yeah. I now have two wells. <laughs> Putting out about 50 gallons per minute. And um, so what happened? Here's what happened. Paul, Stur- Paul Harvey would say, Here's the rest of the story. (laughs) What happened back in July? I had a guy doing some work down there. He got an idea. My son was in Firefighter Academy, and he had all this fire hose. He hooks up about 200 feet of fire hose down to my pond for my two cows. And he's filling the the pond. And I came and I said, hey, you don't need to do that. You can drink out of the creek. Don't do that. That... It's too hot. I need that for irrigation. He said, fine. Next day, I go to California. Three days later, I get the call. And what the guy did was, he decided he was going to fill that pond. And he didn't turn the well off. And for three days, it was cavitating sand and mud. And what we figured out was, my entire system is is absolutely impacted with sand and crud and sludge. And when this guy cut the line, he, he said, at first, the first thing he told me, was, he said, I cut a sewer line. I said, there are no sewer lines. It's all septic, and the septic's down there. He said, it smells so bad. I said, I don't know what that's about. Well, we figured out what it's about. This guy, who didn't turn the well off, three days, it's just... It's impacted in there. And so what we're doing now is we're flushing. hate to use the term, but we're flushing. That's precisely what we're doing. Let's take a minute. Uh, I just feel like I need to weep openly and, and, and unashamedly. Did I say how much money that's cost me? Yeah. Well, we're going to ask the ushers if they'll come forward, and we'll receive the evening love offering. I I mean, I don't care if you don't love me, uh, if you just like me. I don't care if you hate me. No, it's just been... So we're going to start, uh, I'm going to start selling water, Uh, just farrarwater.com, and you swing on by and... I'm telling you what. Now, why do I... What, how, the second well is 100, uh, 120, 140 feet. 
Yeah, we got some good water coming out. Why, why do I go into all this? Well, because I, I feel like before I teach the scriptures, I need to get the bitterness and resentfulness out of my heart. That's sort of the main reason. Actually, there's a reason I tell you that story. The reason I tell you that story is that uh, where we are in James, th this James guy, his approach to me seems to be he takes a two-by-four and hits you right in the chops. At least that's what I pick up from this guy. And what James is basically trying to say, that this morning we did, these tables are up here, and we had an ordination exam for four guys that graduated from Dallas Seminary. And so we had, uh, what do we have? How many chairs are there? Three. We had seven guys. I was one of them. And pastors here. And so we're here, and then these four guys are here. And so for two hours, now they had already filled out, um, they, had to, they had to fill out a theological exam and give, you know, long essay responses. Because, you know, you're checking their theology. And so we're, you know, we got Chuck and we got Dr. Toussaint and, and, and Paul and, you know, we, uh, Mark. And so we're, we're shooting some questions at these guys. And, you know, they're young guys and they're sweating and, you know. And, and you know, we're in the room beforehand just kind of laughing just how scared they are. Because we remember what those days, we remember that. Uh, Chuck, one of the things Chuck said in his ordination, he was, here's a simple question. Dr. Pentecost said to him, um, outline for me the book of Ezekiel. Just right off the top of your head. See, that'll put a little fear in you. So we're asking these guys different questions, and they did a good job, and, you know. But it was theological. We tried to make it practical, but you obviously have to have some theology in there. And uh, they all did real well. The book of James... Uh, is, is really not a theological treatise, although there's theology in it. What James is all about is taking theology and taking truth and getting it out into your life. Uh, sometimes, especially in, in Bible churches and in churches that are strong in the Scripture, what, what can happen is that we can gorge ourselves on Scripture. We can, we can get, uh, quite frankly, we can get these huge heads, massive heads full of truth and full of scripture and full of knowledge and full of verses and full of sermons and full of CDs. We get all this information and our heads begin to swell. The, the point is just not to get truth into your head. The point is for the truth to get into your head, into your heart, and out into your life. You can get all gummed up. You can get gummed up in your heart. You can get all sludged up. You can get, uh, you know, I want to say constipated. That's what I really want to say. But I don't think I am. Uh, that's not pleasant. But see, that's what, uh, now, That's what happened to my whole, my whole deal out there. It's just, and we went down to the well, and we took off that elbow, and that stuff just impacted in there. Just impact. So it gets in the sprinkler heads, and the water can't come out. The, the water was there. The water could not 
get out. And the whole purpose of having the well was to take that water and get it out. Now, that's what James wants to do in our lives. He wants that truth not just to sit there. He doesn't want it to gum us up. He wants that truth to to rotor. You know, there's a beautiful sight when you see those sprinkles. That's almost a charismatic experience. In July, when it's 106, to see that water coming out of there. That's what James is saying. Hey, this truth, this truth, this wisdom we're talking about, you know what the whole point of this is? In your life, it's so that you might... That, that, that you're rotoring that truth out of your life. That you're dripping that truth out of your life. That you're misting. That you're, it's coming out. It's being applied. He just doesn't want it in your head. Just doesn't want it crammed in there for a, a final exam. He wants it to come out where you work, with the people you deal with every day, with your kids, with your wife, with people in church. It's supposed to come out of our lives. Now, in James 3, last week he talked about it's got to come out in our speech. Now, in this section at the end of James 3, beginning with verse 13, he's going to do a, he's going to do a comparison He's going to do a contrast, once again, between the authentic and the counterfeit. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the fact that it's possible to think that you are a believer when, in fact, you are not a believer. That's possible. There are false teachers. There are false prophets. There are people that just profess but their belief is just simply an intellectual belief. That's all it is. It's never gotten into their heart, never gotten into their life. Notice what he says beginning with verse 13 of James chapter 3. And he's going to talk about authentic wisdom as opposed to a counterfeit wisdom. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show, now catch this, catch this. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. James has a lot to say about wisdom. In the opening chapter, he talks about trials. Um, the fact that we all have trials, we all deal with trials, we all have different kinds of trials. But when, when you're in a trial, it's just human nature to say, Lord, get me out of this trial right now. That, that's, and that's all we know. We want out, we want out now. But oftentimes what the Lord does, he puts us in a trial and he leaves us there. Because his primary purpose in our lives at that season is not our own personal happiness. It's our maturity and it's our growth. He wants to grow us up in Christ. And the way that you grow in Christ is to go through hardship and difficulty and suffering. Now, it's not perpetual all the way through. There are seasons where we have... We enjoy his favor and his goodness, and, and uh, it's not as intense as other times, and he gives us a respite. But going through difficulty is, is pretty much, uh, you're, you can count on it as you go through. In some area of your life, there's going to be a trial, just how it works. Through many tribulations, 
We must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22 says. Well, we don't like tribulations. We don't want tribulation. I mean, who the heck wants tribulation? Who wants trial? Who wants hardship? Who wants adversity? My goal is to be pain-free. Is that not your goal? In every area of my life, you ever write out goals and objectives? How many, how many of your objectives and goals say, well, you know, I'd like to be afflicted here because I really want to grow there. And I'm hoping this year that my wife and I will go through a tough period, maybe about six months, where we really don't see to eye eye and we don't get along and we can hardly communicate. I think that'd be good for us to go through. No, we don't do that. Are you kidding me? But see, God does that. He does that. He wants us to get muscle. He wants us to hang in there. He wants us to be tenacious. He doesn't want us to become weary and well-doing. See, this stuff wears on us, knocks us down, gets old. We want out. Oh, here's the other thing we want. When we're in a trial, we want to know why. Why is this happening to me? It's not happening to this guy or this guy or this guy. It hadn't happened to him. Why is it happening to me? God seldom ever tells us why we're in a trial. But here's what God will tell you. God will tell you how to get through the trial. That's James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, now he's just talked about trials, that they're inevitable and that they're certain. So in the context of trials, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God will give you wisdom to navigate through that trial. He doesn't dump three months of wisdom on you. He'll give it to you daily. Here's what you need today. Here's the wisdom you need to get through today. And when you wake up in the morning, I'll give you another shot of wisdom to get you through that day. And then what happens is days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and months turn into years, and he navigates you through the difficulty and the hardship and the trial. He won't tell you why. He'll tell you how. Now, that's our first introduction to wisdom in James. In, in chapter 3, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Who among, and here's another way of saying this. Where do you get wisdom and understanding? Where do you get, you get it? From the, you get it from the scriptures. So we study the scriptures, we grow in the scriptures. That's why we spend so much time on the Word of God. You can't grow apart from the Word of God. Now, can you get all engorged on scripture? Sure you can. That's very unhealthy. It's got to be lived out. So once again, the wisdom, the authentic wisdom of God, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In other words, that truth that is in your life, it ought to be coming out of your irrigation system. That, that, that truth, that wisdom that God has given to you, it ought to be at work. It ought to be in different areas of your life. It, it ought to be visible. It ought to be seen. You say, well, what's that wisdom like? Well, look down at verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You don't, that means you don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder. You're not looking for trouble. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's, 
It's reasonable. Man, that's a great term. Isn't it, isn't it just a pain to deal with somebody you can't reason with? That's not godly. The wisdom of God is reasonable. The idea there is willing to yield. Willing to yield to what? To truth. To sense. Full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, these are the marks of the genuine wisdom of God. That once again, they, they come they come out of your life. Okay? Now, in 14, he's going to turn to the counterfeit wisdom. Because there's always the authentic, and then there's always the counterfeit. Watch this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, what wisdom? Well, the wisdom that was just described in verse 14. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. So the authentic wisdom, we've seen the marks of that, comes out of your life. It's, uh, it's good behavior. It's a change. It's an improvement. The, the guy who's always losing his temper, he's seeing some growth. He's, he, and you say, well, you know, you know, that's hard for me to hear because I don't feel like I'm seeing any growth. You stay with it. You stay with it, and you're going to grow. You stay with it, and at some point, God will give you some kind of breakthrough. You stay with it. You, you keep yourself in the scriptures. You, you, you stay under the mercy of Christ, and, and some things are going to happen in your heart, and they're going to come out of your life. That's how God works. But this counterfeit wisdom which again is, is described beginning with 14. He gives us some of these marks of the counterfeit kind of wisdom. Uh, bitter jealousy. That's not wisdom from God. Think about that. Bitter jealousy. So why are you bitter? Because you're jealous of somebody else. Maybe their success. Maybe their gifts. Maybe, um, I mean, who knows? It can be a thousand things. Did you ever see that movie Amadeus about uh, Elvis Presley? It's kind of, a, kind of a joke for you guys who didn't see it. Uh, Amadeus was a movie about the life of uh, Mozart. And there was this other composer that was absolutely riddled with bitter jealousy towards Mozart. Because this guy would write for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then he'd see something that Mozart knocked off over a cup of cappuccino. And he would just shake his head. Because he knew as long as he lived, he'd never write anything close to that. So bitter jealousy, it just welled up in this guy's life and, and, and destroyed him. 
Ah, look at this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's interesting to me. Selfish ambition. If you have this in your heart, do not be so arrogant and so lie against the truth. And then he mentions selfish ambition again, along with jealousy down in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. See, when this is the kind of wisdom that we're living off of, there is anarchy and chaos in our personal lives, in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids, in our businesses. If, if that is your source, this kind of earthly wisdom, this kind of wisdom that doesn't come down from above, selfish ambition. It's interesting. You run into this oftentimes in the Scripture. There's the authentic and there's the counterfeit. There's the good kind and there's the bad kind. Years ago in Portland, Oregon, I remember reading about a guy who was a gourmet. It was his hobby. He loved to cook and he loved, you know, he was into the organic and all this. And he'd have friends over and make these incredible meals. Well, this guy was such a gourmet that he liked to go out and pick his own produce. And one night, he had this fabulous dinner party, served this fabulous dish. And uh, 24 hours after the dinner party, uh, if, I, if I remember right, four people were dead. And I think six were in the hospital because of the mushrooms he had served. Now, this guy was really with it. This guy was pretty hip. This guy was pretty... Um, Organic, you know. So does he go down to Tom Thumb to get his mushrooms like most normal people do? Nah. Nah, he goes out. He goes out to Hillsboro, Oregon, and he's getting his own mushrooms. But here's the deal with mushrooms. There's a good kind of mushrooms, and there's a bad kind of mushrooms. And if you can't tell the subtleties, it'll kill you. That's the way it is with ambition. There's a good kind of ambition, and there's a bad kind of ambition. Paul says we make it our ambition to please the Lord. You have an ambition to uh, provide for your family? Oh, that's a godly thing. Because if a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. That's a good ambition. You want to build your business? You want to uh, you know, provide for your family, maybe help your folks out? That's a wonderful ambition, you see? But if we're not careful that can turn in very easily to a selfish ambition. What is a selfish ambition? I like what Bill Lawrence says. Bill says uh, that, that a selfish ambition is the need to lead. It's the need to be in the spotlight. It's the need to have everyone know who you are. It, it's, it's the need for approval. It's the need to be honored. It's the need to be recognized. It's the need to be out front. That's this kind of wisdom. And it's very subtle because it can sneak up on us. This kind of wisdom. Now I want you to know how he describes this. He didn't mess around here. Verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. In other words, this is not the kind of wisdom that ought to be in our lives. This wisdom, this counterfeit wisdom, look at this, is earthly as opposed to heavenly. 
It is natural as opposed to supernatural. It is demonic as opposed to godly. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. You know the first time selfish ambition and bitter jealousy ever showed up was in heaven with Lucifer. Lucifer, Satan, the devil. C.S. Lewis said there are two mistakes you can make about Satan. One is to have an unhealthy interest in him and his affairs, and some Christians do that. All they ever study is spiritual warfare. Uh, they're, you know, that's, that's their whole focus. Well, if that's your whole focus, is just studying Satan, well, he's pretty much got you tied up in knots. Because that's your focus. I want to know him, understand him, I want to, you know. Are we to be aware of him? Sure. Is he to be our entire focus? Of course not. Christ is our focus. Jesus is our focus. Jesus said to the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he shall glorify me. You know what's interesting to me? How subtle the enemy is. Jesus was very clear about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will glorify me. You know what's interesting to me? I see groups of Christians from time to time, and all they ever talk about, they don't talk about Satan. You know what they talk about? And you've got to take this right. They talk about the Holy Spirit. Constantly. 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 Perpetually. Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit. Now listen, Holy Spirit is real. Part of the Trinity. Holy Spirit's completely and fully God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But when I get around people, and it's the Holy Spirit this, and the Holy Spirit this, and the Holy Spirit this, I get nervous. You know why I get nervous? Because the evidence that the Holy Spirit is present is that people are speaking of Jesus. J.I. Packer, in his book about the Holy Spirit, in step with the Spirit, talks about um, um, driving down an, uh, an interstate, and you see a large billboard at night. And that billboard has a message, and you can read it because of the powerful lights that illuminate the message. When you drive by that billboard, you don't comment to your, you don't comment to your wife, Gosh, those lights are powerful. Gosh, those, those are incredible lights. Somebody set those lights just right. You know, we ought to study those lights in more detail. Those lights are just phenomenal. Those, hey, if all you talk about are the lights, you've missed the whole point. The lights don't draw attention to themselves. The whole purpose of the light is to throw attention to the message on the billboard. That's the ministry of the Spirit of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to throw the attention on Jesus. When he comes, he shall glorify me. The enemy is very subtle. If he can get us off Christ, that's all he wants to do. So Lewis said, one error is to get so focused on the enemy that you forget everything else. That's an error. The other error is to not believe in his existence. And a lot of people, that's where they are. He doesn't care if you don't believe in him. Because once again, he's got you all wrapped up. Doesn't matter to him, he'll use whatever method works. This uh, bitterness, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, I think 
You say, well, how do, I, how do I discern this? I think we discern it by looking at what happened with Satan when he was in heaven. Flip over to Ezekiel 28, if you would. We're going to go to Ezekiel 28, then we're going to go to Isaiah 14. And what you've got going on in Ezekiel 28 is that there is a judgment being rendered here, as you'll see as we get over there. Uh, to the leader of Tyre. But it's not all, only on the leader of Tyre, it's the one who is behind the leader of Tyre. And you get a description here, beginning in verse 12, that is spoken to this leader or king of Tyre, but it, just, it obviously cannot just apply to him. It's the one who is behind him and the one who motivates him. Uh, Satan is the god of this world. Notice the description given to Satan, and, and we, we should say this, just before we get into this, Satan was the highest of all the angels. He was the leader of the angels. He had more glory. He had more beauty. He had more of everything than the other angels. And you'll see this in here. Look at verse 13. Um, actually, pick up 12. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Uh, look at verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Satan is a created being. Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Look at 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. He couldn't handle his gifts. He was mesmerized with what he had. You know, many times you look at people, we all do, and we think, gosh, I wish I could be like them. Do you know how merciful God has been to not give you those gifts? Because most of us couldn't handle the gifts. This guy was tripped by his great gift. Flip over to Isaiah uh, chapter 14. Keep going left and you'll find Isaiah. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart. This is where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition takes root. It's in the heart. He didn't come out and say this like Imus said what he said. He wasn't broadcasting this. This was in his heart. And we're going to see, I want you to notice the phrase that's repeated time and time again, that Satan said, I will, I will, I will. That's selfish ambition. Now watch this. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. In other words, what he had wasn't good enough. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now catch this. I will make myself like the most high. So what did Satan want? He's the most gifted of the angels, the most majestic of the angels. What is it that he wanted? That wasn't good enough. He wanted to be equal with God. That was his sin. 
And he was thrown out of heaven with a third of the angels, who are now the demons. So you go back to James, and this is the counterfeit wisdom. So if we have bitter jealousy, I see somebody and what's happened to them, and it hasn't happened to me, and I'm bitter over that? Hey, man, you know what? you got to do some heart surgery. Selfish ambition. Now, is there a right kind of ambition? Yeah. You want to better yourself? You want to further yourself? Great. Good. Good for you. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's wonderful. You go get up early, you go to work, you work hard. God tends to bless guys that work hard. You see? After he's done a work in their heart so that they can handle blessing. But there's a difference between a legitimate ambition and a selfish ambition. Selfish ambition here is what Satan had in his heart. That's what James is talking about. When I was uh, probably in my second year of pastoring in California, I, uh, I was visiting another area, and I had a, a friend from seminary who had graduated with me, and he was down there at the same time. Now, in this particular, and I, I don't want to be specific, but in this particular city, region that we were visiting, uh, there was a guy just a few years older than me who had started a church and was having phenomenal success. Just incredible success. Just growing like crazy. Everybody's talking about this guy. They're doing one service, two services, three. I mean, it's this thing going nuts. Build a new building. They're packing out. Now they got to do another building. And my friend, who was in the region visiting as I was, was good friends with this guy from years ago in college. And, and we were talking on the phone, we were, and he said, hey, I'm going to have lunch with this guy. You want to join us tomorrow? And I said, sure, let's do it. So we get together. And we have lunch. I'm not saying a whole lot because they're friends and they're getting caught up. And as we're having lunch, the guy said, well, let's go back to the office. And on the way back to the office, he starts talking about this book. Now, this guy is the latest rage in ministry. He's the latest hotshot. He's the latest great communicator. And as I said, I think last week, good communicators are a dime a dozen, you see. So he's the latest greatest communicator. Um, he starts talking about this book as we're going back to the office. He said, this book, I've been reading this book. He said, I'm telling you, this is a phenomenal book. And he's talking about this chapter, he's talking about this chapter, he's talking about this chapter. And uh, I said, tell me the name of that book again. He said, it's, uh, it's called Looking Out for Number One. I said, really? I said, I think I just saw that. He said, yeah, it's just come out. It's, it's going like hotcakes. So we walk into his office, and he's got a couple copies. He goes, hey, here you go. He said, I'm telling you, this book is life-changing. When somebody tells me a book's life-changing, I usually I'll read it. So I took it home, read it that night, read it the night. I, I basically had it done by dinner the next morning because, you know, if it's that good, I'm going to read it. I, I was a little startled by the content. Some of you guys remember that book. If, if I could put a title on that book, you know what I'd call it? I'd call it Selfish Demonic Ambition. And I've got to tell you something. I was stunned. I was stunned. And I was talking to Mary that night at dinner, and I was telling her about it, and I was reading you some passages out of this book. 
And I said, you know, Mary, I'm no prophet, but I'm going to tell you something. That guy's going down. I mean, you didn't have to be a prophet to figure that out. Because one and one equals two. If you take a book on selfish ambition and you read it and you don't have red flags coming up, there's something wrong. I don't care how gifted you are. There's something wrong. And it was just a matter of time before some things started coming out. Uh, this guy who was so gifted and so powerful, you know, getting invitations from all over the country. Well, he began to take the invitations, and, but, but this gal that was working for him, his assistant that he had hired, he wouldn't travel unless she went with him. And so wherever they went, she went. And you know what happened. I mean, you're just asking for it. You take some chick with you on ministry trips. So why didn't anybody say anything to him? Well, because he was you know, successful. And so he gets involved with her and, you know. Guy comes down like a lead balloon, loses his marriage, wife leaves, everything. And that big, big church, you know, just sucker, you know what? It's like, a, it's like a balloon at a party that loses all its air. Still the building's still out there. It, it took that church, it took them 20 years to recover. And you may, you may be thinking, well, I know who that is. You may and you may not because that could be about one of 20 that we could probably just name just from what we know around here. <sighs> Looking out for number one, that's a recipe for disaster. That's selfish ambition. It, is it not? It's earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. So, so, so let's, uh, let's put wheels on this thing, guys. B because, you know, it's like mushrooms. The, the, there's a fine line between legitimate ambition and selfish ambition. So how do, I, how do I recognize that in my own life? How do I recognize it in my own heart? Well, I haven't mentioned this book for a while. This book, Good to Great, this is a really fine book about business. And if you know anything about this book, it's been on the bestseller list for a long, long time. This is a book, this is a book worth reading. Uh, he doesn't quote any Bible verses. What this is about is, uh, it, the lead-in is, why some companies make the leap and others don't. Good to great. Um, he he's basically has taken some companies that they studied in depth. They studied like over 1,100 companies, and they came up with 11 that, that were... That, were, that had been pretty good companies, but then they had kind of, you know, depleted a little bit, kind of leveled off, and they were in a transition. And they were good companies, but you know what happened? Something happened, and they, and they became, they were able to ford the river and ford the flood, and they became great companies. And what they do in this book is they identify these companies, and they came up with 11. One of the principles, and I'll tell you something about this book. Roger and I were talking about this book. This book is absolutely full of scriptural principles, although the guy never talks about scripture. But every time I read a chapter, I'm reminded of how much Bible is in this book. He has a, uh, one of his principles is that the companies that did well 
were characterized by what he called, uh, what does he call this thing? He calls it a, let me see if I can find it. I think it's level five. Yeah, yeah, level five. It has a level five executive. In other words, the guy leading the company is one of these level five execs. Now, he contrasts that with the, with the normal idea of a powerful, successful CEO, which he calls the I, capital I, I-centric style of leadership. He says, in contrast to the very I-centric style of leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they'd talk about the company and the contribution of, of other executives as long as we'd like, but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, well, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot. Or if the board hadn't picked such great successors, you probably wouldn't be talking with me today. Or did I have a lot to do with it? Oh, that sounds too self-serving. I don't think I can take that much credit. We're, we're, we've been blessed with great people. Or there are plenty of people in this company who could do my job better than I. It wasn't just false modesty, Jim Collins writes. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his own clippings, and so forth. Hmm. Oh, I like this. One guy sums it up. It's the difference between a show horse and a plow horse. The guys that were the great leaders by the performance of the companies, they weren't show horses. They were plow horses. Um, yeah. Of the 1,435 companies that appeared in the Fortune 500 in our, initial, can in our initial, initial candidate list, only 11 made the very tough cut into our study. And those 11, all of them had level 5 leadership men in key positions, including the CEO at the pivotal time of transition. And then he's got a, a graph that summarizes the two sides of level five leadership. The first thing is professional will. That would be ambition. And he says they create superb results, a clear catalyst in the transition from good to great. But alongside of that, he has personal humility, demonstrates a compelling modesty, shunning public adulation, never boastful, uh, the next point under professional will, this would be their ambition, demonstrates an unwavering resolve to do whatever must be done to produce the best long-term results, results no matter how difficult. And then personal humility acts with a quiet, calm determination, relies principally on inspired standards, not inspiring charisma to motivate, and just down the line. You know what this guy's talking about? He's talking about what Jesus said when Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. You're not looking out for number one. Flip with me over to Philippians chapter 2, would you? So maybe you're sitting here as I am when I, when I study this passage, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know what? I've got to watch this selfish ambition stuff because I know my heart. I know it could happen to me, and it has happened to me. And It'll probably happen again. i got to fight this stuff off. So here's what I want to know. 
You eat bad mushrooms, and if you're fortunate, they get you to the hospital, and there's some kind of antidote. Now, I don't know what it is, but they save some of those people in Portland. What is the antidote? What is the antidote to selfish ambition? Uh, or, or, uh, and there's always an antidote, biblically. For instance, you know, greed. Greed is a huge issue. Uh, if we're not careful, our hearts can get greedy. Uh, Satan was greedy. We're, we're not satisfied. We're never content. It's always got to be more and more and more and more and insatiable, and that, that's, that desire is never enough. Anyway, so if you're concerned about greed, how do you fight off greed? Because what is greed? Greed wants more and more and more. Well, the antidote to greed is giving. So if you're concerned that you're getting greedy, what do you do? You apply the antidote, which I'm afraid I want too much. Oh, then start giving stuff away. That's the antidote. You counterbalance it. What is the antidote to demonic personal driven selfish ambition? And by the way, when those things are around, there's disorder and every evil thing. Nothing good comes out. What good came out of what Satan did? Now, God will turn it to good because he's God. But on a human level, you, you see the point, don't you? The antidote to selfish ambition is something called humility. Philippians chapter 2. And once again, you know, guys, the scriptures are so cotton-picking practical. Right? I, you know, you, you, you can't miss this thing. Now, I want you to watch here how this works. Uh, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And by the way, isn't all conceit empty? Sure it is. So some guy catches a pass and scores a touchdown. Well, you just dropped the ball to play before. You dunce. What's this all about? Hey, let me ask you something. What about those offensive linemen that nobody knows their names? Then they're getting the crud kicked out of them. They can't even stand up straight in the morning. Would you have caught that ball? You know what I'm saying. All can, and by the way, just because you have... Great hand-eye coordination. Where the heck did you get that? Who gave that to you? What have you been given that you did not receive? There's no room for conceit about anything. Because anything that we are able to contribute is because we have been given. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Now catch this. Did you catch that? With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. When he's describing these level five leaders, that's what these guys do. Now you say, oh, wait a minute, so, you know, so i, I got to become a doormat? No, it doesn't say you become a doormat. Look at this. Verse four. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, 
but also for the interest of others. He's not saying you don't look out for your interest. Of course you do. But that's not all you look out for. You look out for the interest of others. Now catch this. Here we go. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he laid aside his privileges, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By the way, to humble yourself, here's what humility means. I remember one time we had a lady in our church sing a solo, and it was magnificent. I went up to her afterwards, and I thanked her. I said, thank you. And that was just tremendous. That, that was outstanding. And she said, well, it was just the Lord. And I thought to myself, I would have sworn I heard you singing that song. <laughs> now, I, I know what she was trying to do. She was trying to be humble. She wanted to give the glory to God, and, and, and that's great. But, see, we get confused about humility. If someone gives you a compliment, just say, well, thank you. Now, of course God gave her the voice. We, we know that, but you know what? She spent hours working on that. It trained for years and years. You see, we get a little weird sometimes in humility. What is humility? Humility is preferring someone else over yourself. That's what Jesus did. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, but see, he wasn't a man. He was God. Yeah, but see, he humbled himself and laid aside his privileges and came to earth and was born of a virgin in a manger, in a cattle trough. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus going to the cross, last Friday is Good Friday. Jesus dying on the cross, I mean, quite frankly, he didn't do what was best for him. He did what was best for you and for me. He gave preference to us over himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed to him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and on the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Catch this. Here's Satan, selfish ambition. Here's the counterfeit ambition. Satan has been given tremendous gifts, a tremendous position, but it's not good enough. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will become God. So what was Satan all about? He wanted to elevate himself. He wanted to lead. He wanted to be supreme. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to elevate himself by any means in order to be the greatest. In contrast to that, take Jesus, who was the greatest, who was God. And what did Jesus do? Laid aside his privileges. Humbled himself. Satan wanted the high place. Jesus left the high place and took the low place. So that we might have our sins forgiven. That's the real deal. That's humility. That's wisdom. Have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean, guys? We'll say, Steve, this is kind of hard at work. You know, actually it isn't. Well, actually it is. 
And actually it isn't. See, what I'm saying is, where you work, you go to work for Jesus. And you serve Jesus. And you honor him. And you're not a doormat. But you're also not the most difficult guy in the company to deal with. And you look for ways to serve. And you look for ways, as you follow Christ, to let that truth and and the transformation that's happened in your life, as you follow Jesus, you know what happens? Here's what happens. As you follow Christ, and you're working off that wisdom, and you're not elevating yourself, but you're just putting your nose to the grindstone and showing up and working hard, you know what's happening? Let me tell you what's happening. You're You're irrigating. That's what you're doing. And the truth is being broadcast out of your life. And they all see it. They may not all like it, but they all see it. And at home, I love this guy, James. Don't you? I'm really glad that my sprinklers are working again. (laughs) And you know what? But I want to make sure that the spiritual sprinklers aren't getting clogged. Let's bow our heads. Help us, Lord, to live off your wisdom and let it come out in our lives. Now, we're in process. Oak trees don't mature in seven days. They take years. And I think it's in the book of Isaiah, you said that you would call your people oaks of righteousness. Now, that takes years and years and years. So let us make sure that today and then tomorrow and then the next day, that we just bow before you and say, Lord Jesus, be first in my life. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And Lord, when we humble ourselves at the right time, you'll exalt us at the right time. Not the time we think, but at the right time. We'll trust you with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.